Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Neuro Experience Podcast. I'm Louisa. I'm the host. Joining me today is Dr. Chris Palmer. He's a board-certified psychiatrist and assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He explains the important connection between nutrition, metabolism, and mental health. He also talks about his pioneering work using the ketogenic diet to successfully treat patients with various mental illnesses, such as depression and schizophrenia. As you'll learn in today's episode, Chris truly believes that mental illnesses aren't genetic disorders, but rather disorders of the metabolism which means mental illnesses such as schizophrenia and depression are all within our power. We're going to be talking about metabolism, nutrition, mitochondria, sunlight, exercise, and energy. This is a truly remarkable episode with a truly remarkable physician who is going out there and using what was pain in his own life to revolutionize the world of psychiatry. You're going to be absolutely blown away with this episode, just as I was. Without further delay, let's get into it. I have partnered with Momentous Supplements, and we have been partnered with them for over a year now, and that is because they make truly remarkable supplements. So, Everybody keeps asking me, Louisa, what are the best brands? And I have to tell you, I'm pointing you towards Momentous. If you are looking for a creatine, you've probably seen my posts on Instagram or you've probably heard me talk about creatine being one of the best things that you can be taking. It is the most widely studied supplement and it's the safest supplement on the market to date. And prehistorically, people were taking creatine for growing bigger muscles. It was like this bodybuilding uh, supplement, but now we have substantial evidence to show the beneficial effects of creatine on the brain. If you want to get the purest form of creatine, not to mention EPA, DHA, omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin D, zinc, all of the supplements that I get, I call it my cognitive bundle, can all be found on the Momentous website. Just head on over to livemomentous.com slash neuro and you will see a list of all of my supplements and you can get 15% off store-wide. That is livemomentous.com slash Louisa for 15% off Momentous Supplements. I'd also like to thank today's sponsor, which is Element. Electrolytes are key to cellular function, in particular neuronal and nerve cell function. In order for your nerve cells to be able to fire action potentials, those are the electrical signals that allow your brain and body to work and move and think, you need sodium, potassium and magnesium in the proper ratios. So you've heard me speak about Element before, LMNT. It's an electrolyte drink that has everything you need and nothing you don't, meaning there's no sugar in this one, guys. And there is plenty of the correct ratios of sodium, magnesium, and potassium. In fact, there's a thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium within each sachet. Moving into the hotter months, if you are here in the US, you know that you're going to be sweating. Getting electrolytes each day is key. 
And this electrolyte compares to nothing else on the market. So if you want to grab your pack today, I'm currently drinking the watermelon salt. You will love this one. Head on over to elementlmnt.com slash neuro. You will get a discount and you will get a free pack. When you get the free pack, I suggest you get the assortment of all the different flavors so you can try them out. So it's really a win-win. That's element.com slash neuro. Chris, it's so good to have you on the Neuro Experience podcast. It's been uh, a long time coming. Thank you for having me on. Brain Energy. Ever since you wrote that book, and when when did you first, when did it go out to the public? November 15th, 22. November, it's, you've just like gained so much traction. Do you think that this is a, a different, you've taken a very different approach to obviously brain energy, metabolism and depression. Do you think that that's what's caused this wild spread of your name in the book? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that's what it is. I hope people are impressed with it and it's not just... They they think I'm gone I've gone crazy or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, why don't you tell everybody listening um, a, a bit about your story and uh, who you are and a bit about the book? So, um, so my name is Chris Palmer. There's so much to my story. Uh, they uh, I I will just say I am a Harvard psychiatrist. I have done neuroscience research for about 15 years. I have a primarily academic position with Harvard Medical School and McLean Hospital. I'm the director of Continuing Ed, have been in that role for over 20 years now, um, have always done clinical work. And uh, typically, my practice has been filled with patients with treatment-resistant mental disorders. So I see the worst of the worst, I uh, so to speak. Um, nothing disparaging toward the patients, but more toward the prior clinicians who tried to treat them and could not help them. And um, so I usually see people who have, uh, you know, been on numerous medications, sometimes dozens, years or decades of psychotherapy, electroconvulsive therapy, other treatments, and then they end up in my office. Mm. Um, and the book is, is really... Um, the book is quite audacious, I will say. I am, uh, I am, have done my best to synthesize literally decades of research, clinical, epidemiological, genetic research in the mental health field, neuroscience research, brain scans, um, but also combined it with other very disparate healthcare fields metabolic health, um, and the aging fields in particular. And I have done my best to integrate all of that research to be able to answer a really basic common sense question, what exactly causes mental illness? And, you know, for most people who aren't familiar, all that familiar with the mental health field, believe it or not, we can't really answer that question, or at least we have not been able to answer that question in very clear ways at all. Um, Instead, we talk about risk factors for mental illness, and we usually describe them as biopsychosocial risk factors, meaning there are biological, psychological, and social factors that come together to cause mental illness. But what exactly is happening in the brain? Why do people have mental disorders? Oh, nobody can figure it out. It's way too complicated. It's the brain. Um, And that's where we've been stuck as a field, 
And the audacious thing that I am doing is that I am proposing a unifying theory that ties together all of that research that I just mentioned and puts it together in one coherent way. And the soundbite conclusion is that mental disorders are, in fact, metabolic disorders of the brain. That is what I am proposing. Wow, that's, you know, I think it's hard to define it, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's because when you say mental illness or mental health, it encompasses many different areas. It does. Yeah. And so, and so to, to start off, you know, we have DSM that has over 70 unique, different, separate mental disorders. Um, and then many of them have even subclassifications within them. So you could have bipolar disorder, but you could be having a manic episode or a depressive episode. You could have psychotic features. Um, you could have rapid cycling. You could have all sorts of features even within that one diagnostic category. Mm. And so it turns out that you know, the, the mental health field, DSM, our diagnoses, they're widespread, they're all over the map. And more importantly, we, we often confuse reactions to adversity. So a child who's being bullied and teased on the playground, a lot of people would say that kid is going to have mental health problems, trauma. mental health challenges, yeah. tra Childhood trauma, trauma. Yeah. stress, or whatever. And and that we need to we need to rectify that. And the solution, of course, are anti-bullying campaigns and other things in the school. So some people think mental health is about that. It's about anxiety or trauma or stress or adversity. And yet we have other mental disorders like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder where people become floridly psychotic. They are hallucinating. They are delusional. They can be incoherent. And I think most people recognize, oh, those are those, that's not bullying and teasing on the playground. That's that, those are brain disorders. Those are real things. Those are legit. They're clearly biological in some way or another, but we can't really figure it out. Wow. It's um so I want to touch on these different areas, but first and foremost, in your book, Brain Energy, you discuss the relationship between what we just said, uh, metabolism or metabolic health and mental health. But I want to really understand what the role is of metabolism when we talk about mental health. So, you know, so the, again, so to kind of make sure listeners can understand what I'm really saying. So what I'm saying is that mental disorders are metabolic disorders of the brain. And so if we ask the common sense question that you, I think, just asked me, what is metabolism? Most people think of metabolism as burning calories. And they think that metabolism relates to your weight, relates to age, or relates to athletic performance. Um, and yes, absolutely, metabolism does relate to all of those things. Metabolism is, in fact, related to burning calories. It does make athletes faster and stronger. Um, it tends to slow down as we get older. Um, other people think of me metabolic disorders as relating to obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. The, the buzzword the last many years is insulin resistance. And, and, 
And so some people think those are synonymous terms, that a metabolic problem is insulin resistance, and insulin resistance is a metabolic problem, and there's nothing more to it. It's that simple. It's a one-to-one relationship. And in fact, none of those things is completely accurate. All of them are true. All of them have some truth in them, and yet none of not nothing that I just said is sufficient in clearly defining the scope and breadth of what metabolism truly is. So, a basic definition of metabolism is that it is a fundamental part of the definition of living organisms, all life, all things that we consider independent living organisms have to be able to do metabolism. And it is the process of turning food and oxygen, in our case, into energy or building blocks used to maintain or grow cells. And it also involves the efficient management of the waste products of those processes. So it's basically about turning food into energy and building blocks that we use to grow and maintain our bodies. But it is fundamental to the definition of life. So then, okay, so then when we talk about things that go wrong, metabolic dysfunction, are we saying that this can then have an impact, not just on our physiology, meaning, uh, you know, how we look and maybe weight gain, et cetera, but also how we think and how our brain operates? Absolutely. So in the same way that we have those three metabolic disorders, obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease, a lot of people understand that obesity can be a metabolic disorder. They usually think of that as a problem in burning calories. It's actually a lot more complex than that, but okay, so people have trouble burning calories or accessing stored fat or something. Cardiovascular disease is very different. That's where your heart gets clogged up with arteries and it you know you can die of that, but that's a metabolic problem too. Yeah. Um, and diabetes, same deal. It's a metabolic problem. What I'm arguing is that in the same way that metabolic problems can affect your heart or your fat cells or how many calories you burn, in the same way that a metabolic problem can affect your glucose levels, metabolic problems can affect the brain and the way your brain functions. And at the end of the day, if you put all of the science that we have all of the science that we have accumulated over decades and decades of neuroscience and psychiatric research, the only way to put them together in one coherent way is to come to the realization that mental disorders, brain dysfunction that we call mental illness, whether it's schizophrenia or depression or PTSD or alcoholism even, that the dysfunction in the brain is due to a metabolic problem in those brain cells. And then how do we get that metabolic problem? So let's talk about, let's hone in on depression because I think everybody knows what that is. Um, You know, people have somewhat experienced, um, you know, a bout of depression, you know, somewhere in their lives. I know that, you know, I wouldn't say I've ever been severely depressed, but there's been some sad times in my life. And would that then be a result of metabolic dysfunction in my brain? So the first thing that I want to do in answering your question is I want to distinguish between normal depression Mm -hmm. and 
a brain disorder that we call major depressive disorder. <clears throat> and it's a really critical distinction. So the human brain is actually hardwired to get depressed and to have all of the symptoms of clinical depression. So if you have a spouse and two kids, and your spouse and two kids are out driving in the rain without you, and they get hit head-on by a drunk driver and killed, you are going to become clinically depressed mm -hmm. within 24 hours, probably sooner. You might have some other emotional reactions prior to that, but as soon as that news really sinks in, you are going to become clinically depressed. That is not due to metabolic dysfunction anywhere. That is due to your brain being hardwired to have that response to horrible, tragic, life-altering news. You have just, your life and your purpose in life have just been devastated. You have just lost some of the most important people to you in your life you will get depressed. And in fact, I would argue, if you don't get depressed, you there is something wrong with you. There is really something wrong with you yeah, that's if you, you have don't to get worry. depressed. Yeah. Um, and either you didn't love your kid, yeah. <laughs> and well, now we're going to think that, did you set, send that drunk driver to hit yeah. them or something? But you, <laughs> like, you could say this for anything that's, you know, that's, um, that's stressful. So for example, how about a you know, if you're married uh, and your spouse comes home and just says, you know what, I'm just not in love with you anymore. I'm done. That's it, you know, or a divorce or, yes. so, yeah, it's all that. Absolutely. Then you can become depressed from that situation. Depressed. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Or a high school student who really wants to go to a good college and they flunk a test or they get a C on the test when they really needed an A on that test. That person may get depressed because- Again, they have wrapped so much into the meaning of that and their purpose in life and their purpose in life is getting into a good college and they can't, they don't want to be flexible on that. They don't want to adapt. They are committed to I'm getting into a good college and then they get this bad grade that can make someone depressed, mm -hmm. like really depressed for at least a short period of time. Okay. And. And I am arguing that those are normal adaptive reactions, that all humans have those, and that those are not disorders. We should not talk about those as disorders. Um, we should recognize that those things happen. On the other hand, when somebody has chronic, unrelenting depression for no good reason, maybe something bad happened to them, but it was like three years ago and they still haven't gotten over it, and they're still depressed, and they cannot move on with their life. Or the other person who says, I don't know why I'm so depressed. I don't know why I'm so miserable, why I'm thinking about suicide, why, why I hate my life. I don't understand it. On the surface, objectively, I can see that I have a good life, but I don't know what's wrong with me. I just, I'm so miserable. I can't stop crying. I can't stop ruminating. What I'm arguing is that that second person has brain dysfunction. The brain networks 
that create the experience of depression in all of us if we experience tragedies or setbacks in life. Those same brain networks are now malfunctioning. They are firing when they should not be firing. And what I am arguing is that the only way to understand how and why they would fire erroneously is to understand the metabolism in those cells and in those brain networks. And that once we understand that, we can understand why somebody develops a brain disorder that we might call major depression or major depressive disorder. And it's interesting because it's an unorthodox view because, you know, what you would see is if we looked at it this way, then an SSRI may not exist, right? Well, that's really interesting. <laughs> so so right now, the, the paradigm that most people are probably familiar with is that depression is due to a chemical imbalance. Mm. And that chemical imbalance for depression is usually thought of as serotonin, so the SSRI. So that is a prevailing mindset in the in the in the minds of many patients and clinicians is that people with depression don't have enough serotonin in their brain and so if we boost their serotonin with an SSRI that will fix the problem the what i'm arguing is that neurotransmitters can become imbalanced due to metabolic dysfunction and so we have to be able to answer the question well why are the neurotransmitters imbalanced if they even are um, more importantly, with the question of an SSRI in particular, we actually have evidence that SSRIs do impact brain metabolism and more specifically brain mitochondrial function. And so, in fact, their mechanism of action, because they do work for some people, there's no question about it. As a clinical psychiatrist, I have seen them work in people. I know they work for some people. Um, they don't work for everyone, but when they do work, we have evidence that they are actually increasing brain metabolism, or more specifically, they're improving mitochondrial function in brain cells. And that, in fact, is probably its primary mechanism of action. It's really not about the serotonin or a serotonin imbalance per se. It's probably more about the, uh, the effects on brain metabolism. So the bottom line is SSRIs do work for depression for some people, but they fail to work for other people. And although a lot of people think that the mechanism of action is related to this serotonin imbalance, meaning that depression must be caused by low levels of serotonin, we actually have a tremendous amount of neuroscience research suggesting that that is actually not at all true or accurate. Um, researchers can actually measure the levels of serotonin in the brain, and they have consistently not been found to be imbalanced in the brains of people with clinical depression. And yet, SSRIs do work, and that is what has driven the hypothesis that because this medication that increases serotonin levels in the synapse works for depression, then the cause must be low levels of serotonin. But in fact, we have additional research that actually combines that clinical research and a lot of people's real-world experience of SSRIs help me 
with my depression or anxiety or OCD, um, with my theory, the brain energy theory. And that is that serotonin is known to play a role in something called mitochondrial biogenesis, Mm. meaning it stimulates the production of more mitochondria in your cells, which improves brain metabolism. And in fact, that, I would argue, is probably the real mechanism of action of SSRIs, is that they are improving brain metabolism when they work in people. But there are many causes of abnormal brain metabolism, and serotonin may not be enough to overcome some of those other causes. So that is so important because we touch on mitochondrial biogenesis fairly often because we we speak about increasing skeletal muscle mass. We talk about things such as going into the cold bath. Um, And so everybody's familiar with uh, mitochondria, but I'd love to first... I want to touch on mitochondria a bit more in the brain because when we hear about it, we're really talking about it in the body. And, you know, I get asked often, oh, Louisa, do we have mitochondria in the brain as well? I'm like, well, yeah, we've got brain cells and they're very similar to the cells in our body. They've just got dendrites um, and axons. So they're very different in that aspect. But can you just walk us through what mitochondria is when when we think about it in the brain? So most people know mitochondria as the powerhouse of the cell. And and what that means is that mitochondria take food and oxygen and turn it into ATP. And there is no question mitochondria do that. And that role is critically important when that role is, you know, um, interrupted, we we can die pretty quickly. Um, So powerhouse function is really important. But the thing that a lot of people really don't fully understand or appreciate is that mitochondria are so much more than that. And this is new cutting-edge research. This is why your high school teacher did not tell you that mitochondria are more than powerhouses. That person did not know no. I'm, that mitochondria I'm guessing were they more. still don't know. I'm guessing they still don't know, they, Chris. <laughs> they still don't know. I am trying to help spread the word. But cutting-edge research over the last 20 years has completely shattered the way we think about mitochondria. Mitochondria are so much more than powerhouses. And as I was developing the brain energy theory, this was one of the things that was completely mind-blowing for me as a psychiatrist and neuroscientist. The more that I learned about mitochondria and the different roles and functions that they play— in brain cells in particular, the more that I could connect the dots of the mental health field. So mitochondria play an, I'll I'll give you just a quick snapshot. Mitochondria play an instrumental role in the production and regulation and release of key neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine and GABA and glutamate. Mm. Mitochondria play a role in the inflammation, turning it both on and off. Mitochondria play a role in the production of some key hormones, including cortisol, um, estrogen, testosterone, progesterone. Mitochondria play a role in insulin signaling and glucose regulation. But here's the kicker. For those of you who think, oh, Chris Palmer, you're too much of a biologist and you're only focused on biology and mental illness also has to do with trauma and stress and adversity. And those are real factors in causing mental illness. 
guess what? Mitochondria play a direct role in all of the different forms of the human stress response. Meaning, when when humans are traumatized or stressed, mitochondria are helping to orchestrate that stress response, and in turn, that stress response impacts mitochondria and their function and their long-term health. Mm. And so, mitochondria are actually the unifying link of the mental health field. We can start to put together biological, psychological, and social factors because they all converge at the level of mitochondria. Um, And in many ways, some people think it can't be that simple. (laughs) Well, trust me, if you really understand mitochondria and if you really understand the complexity of all the other things that are going into their function, it's not simple at all. Um, but it is a lot simpler than what we have ever understood. It, it, really, it really all does converge through mitochondria. And to help people understand, well, why would that be? How could that be possible? Mitochondria are critical to life. They are critical to metabolism. Without metabolism, we are dead. So it is not surprising or shocking that everything converges through whether we are alive or dead. It's just not that shocking. So ultimately, what you're saying is these little factories within our cells, which is the mitochondria, when they start to break down, we can see these these certain disease states exasperate. Correct when they yeah yes okay. I would say I would say two things can happen in brain cells in particular so that either the brain cell develops insufficient mitochondria to do the job necessary or the mitochondria that are in that brain cell are dysfunctional in some way and that is what I would argue can result in what we call mental disorders. Mm. So I'm not talking about getting depressed because your spouse just died. I'm talking about the person with chronic unrelenting depression for no good reason. But I'm also talking about people with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and even alcoholism. The mitochondria in some of the cells are dysfunctional or insufficient, and that makes those cells malfunction, and that results in symptoms that we call mental illness. But depending on where in the brain that malfunction is happening, different people can develop different disorders or different symptoms of disorders. So would I be wrong in saying that it's not just about getting more mitochondria and increasing, you know, and activating mitochondrial biogenesis? It's about fixing the mitochondria that is already residing within the cell? It's both. Okay. So it so we definitely if there are if there are dysfunctional mitochondria in that cell, we really do want to get rid of them, as many of them as possible. We want to get rid of those old defective ones, recycle them, and we want to replace them with new ones. So replacing them with new ones is mitochondrial biogenesis, but getting rid of the old ones is called, it's something that's called mitophagy. 
So getting rid of old defective mitochondria and replacing them with new. Okay, so my next question is, how do we do that? I mean, it seems like it seems pretty it seems like a mathematical equation, right? Like in algebra, you know, I equate everything to math. In algebra, it's like, well, you've got a, a linear equation and y equals mx plus b. And it just feels like, okay, well, clean out um clean out the dysfunctioning mitochondria, insert new clean mitochondria equals better brain chemistry. That's how I see it. Yeah. So then how do we do that? Yes. <laughs> So this is the wonderful and amazing thing, is that a lot of the treatment strategies and principles that I'm going to talk about, everyone's going to say, well, we already knew that. <laughs> yeah. So it's things, it's things like diet, yeah. but specific dietary strategies in particular. Yeah. So it's not, just, it's not just eating a healthy diet. It's not eat your broccoli every day and you can get rid of your schizophrenia. That is not at all what I am saying. I am not saying eat five fruits and vegetables a day and you will get rid of your schizophrenia. That is not what I am saying. But if you use dietary strategies like the ketogenic diet or like fasting or intermittent fasting or even carbohydrate restriction or low glycemic index diets, those can all play a role in turning on this process of mitophagy getting rid of those old defective mitochondria, and then replacing them with new ones. And those are powerful dietary interventions. So, you know, the example of fasting, for instance, is not about a quote-unquote healthy diet. Fasting is the absence of diet. Fasting is not eating anything. So you can eat anything else you want whenever you're eating. Fasting means you don't eat. So... All of those dietary strategies, but we should be talking about exercise and good restorative sleep. But we should also be looking for problems. We should be looking for things that impair mitochondrial function or impair metabolism. That includes substances like alcohol, marijuana, tobacco, um, vaping. None of those things are good for your metabolic or mitochondrial health. Sorry to rain on your parade, everyone, but that's just, those are the facts. And if you are trying to overcome a brain disorder or a mental disorder or whatever we want to call it, you may really benefit by giving those things up, even just for a period of time, to allow your brain to heal and restore its metabolic health. Um hormones and hormonal imbalances can impact metabolism. This is particularly prominent with things like insulin resistance or thyroid hormone disorders, but it, it's probably most prevalent. Unfortunately, it's very unfair in women. So women have um, hormonal fluctuations with estrogen and progesterone if they are of reproductive age those hormones are fluctuating every 28 or so days. And when women go through menopause, those hormones change a lot. When women go through pregnancy, those hormones can change a lot. And for anybody who knows anything about mental health and female reproductive hormones, you know all of those things are associated with exacerbations of mental symptoms or mental disorders in some women. 
And so sometimes just understanding those connections can be really helpful in designing appropriate treatment plans for people. So I I especially love when I was reading in the book your take on exercise, and I speak about exercise so often, especially as it um, improves brain health, brain function, um, you know, vascular health. What's your take on resistance training versus aerobic physical activity? So there are benefits to both, quite honestly. So zone two training is probably the best studied intervention for inducing both mitophagy and mitochondrial biogenesis. So zone two training, for those of you who don't know, is kind of low-ish level, but steady, but sure cardio um, exercise. But you're going to be doing it usually for at least 30, 45 minutes, if not even longer. So it's about running longer distances or cycling longer distances. You're not sprinting. You're going at a pace where you can breathe. But that stimulates, that forces your muscles to require more mitochondria to keep up that pace, to not get fatigued. And it turns out that when you stimulate muscle mitochondria, they actually send signals to the brain that then stimulate brain mitochondrial adaptations. And um, and so, so zone two training, I'm a big fan of, but just making your muscles larger also increases mitochondrial health in those muscles and, and the number of mitochondria in those muscles. And that has benefits for the brain as well. How about sleep and sunlight? Because we were talking offline about your sleep schedule, which I really want to emulate. Um, so what's, what's, the, what's the link there? So, so most people already kind of know this. Poor sleep is associated with all of the metabolic disorders and also all of the mental disorders. So if you do not get enough sleep, it takes a toll on your mitochondria. We have very good direct basic science research demonstrating all of that. But again, why does that matter? Because of what I just said clinically. If you don't get good sleep and you are overweight, you're more likely to start gaining more weight. Mm. If you have diabetes, your blood sugars are going to be like more out of control when you don't sleep well. If you have a history of angina or chest pain because you've got a lot of cardiovascular disease going on and you don't sleep, you might have a heart attack. But it also stands for every mental disorder, every single one. If you have schizophrenia and you don't sleep, your hallucinations get worse. Mm -hmm. If you have depression and you don't sleep, your depression gets worse. Anxiety gets worse. Eating disorders get worse. Substance use disorders get worse. Personality disorders get worse. All of them. So sleep is critical to mitochondrial health. And um, sunlight or, you know, light is important and light is a circadian rhythm thing. So we need exposure to bright light in particular in the morning if we can get it. And that might be taking a walk outside or using a bright light therapy if you live in the Northeast like I do um, and you can't get bright light uh, early in the morning, sometimes at least in the winter. Um, 
getting bright light exposure helps set your circadian rhythm. But then light is also about avoiding light, especially blue lights and other types of light in the evening when we should be sleeping. Our circadian rhythms can get disrupted from too much light at night or not enough light during the day and in particular in the morning. Mm. Okay. So I've I've got this whole new look ever since I read your book. And if you saw my book, you'd see that there's like little bookmarks all through it, little um, tabs. And I've been highlighting, I'm like, where has this information been my whole life? And I've been dying to know what was the reason, the real reason, because you stated it at the front of the book um, as to why you really wanted to go into psychiatry and why you wanted to study this disease and, and brain energy metabolism. So the, yeah, the... <laughs> It's really a long, long, complicated answer. But the the short one is that I myself had mental illness when I was a kid. Um, And I actually had a very long history through adolescence and young adulthood with a wide variety of mental disorders. I've had OCD. I have had horrible depression, suicide attempts, um, all sorts of things myself. And I don't want to deny that, and I don't want to hide that, and that's there. And that is all of all of my experience with that has helped me be a better psychiatrist, because I kind of do at least get it somewhat. I've been there myself, so I know what it's like to be suicidally depressed. I know what it's like to have symptoms that you can't control. I know what it's like to feel hopeless. But the real reason I'm a psychiatrist is not because of my own personal story and struggles. It's because of my mother's struggles. Um, So my mother actually had a pretty normal middle-class life up until she was 42. And um, I'm from a big family. We had eight kids. And uh, we were Catholic. Um, my mom helped my dad start a pharmacy, a business. And when she was about 42, all sorts of horrible things happened in her family of origin, um, her brothers and sisters and some other people that um, really horrible things happened, soap opera kind of stuff. She had nothing to do with it. She was just minding her own business, living her good middle class life. She got dragged into all of it, hook, line, and sinker. And it completely overwhelmed her. She developed what started as depression. She kind of called it a nervous breakdown. It quickly started including suicidal ideation. And then shortly thereafter, she actually started developing psychotic symptoms. Um, She became delusional. Uh, she thought she was Mary Magdalene. She wow. thought the world was ending. She, all sorts of yeah. delusions. And um, she ended up getting psychiatric treatment and it was completely, utterly worthless for her. It basically, They basically drugged her to no benefit. They put her on all sorts of antipsychotics and other medicines that did nothing but sedate her. They didn't make her better. Um, and the at the end of the day, the short story is that she never got better. Um, and I was furious with the mental health field. 
So I actually became a mental health provider, not because I love the mental health field, but actually because I kind of hated the mental health field. I thought they were a bunch of incompetent idiots. And, um, and I knew how serious and devastating mental disorders could be. I knew that they could ruin people's lives. They could ruin entire families. And that somebody needed to do something to help these people um, because what was happening just was so inadequate, at least for my mom. Wow. Thank you for sharing that story. I think um, I think you're doing an absolutely phenomenal job. And for everybody listening, make sure you pick up uh, Chris's book, Brain Energy. It really changed my life. And it's all about charging the batteries within your cell. And you're not saying anything that is actually crazy expensive. You're really just saying, go out and, and first do what mother nature has gifted you with, you know, get sleep, get exercise, adopt a ketogenic lifestyle if that's what um, is best for you or however, you know, you want to live your life. But it's really the basic things that probably our ancestors have been speaking about. My grandmother, for one, you know, I always look back, she passed away and I think she was 95 and she was fantastic. Okay, around 95, she started to lose her mind a bit. But I mean, like, she wasn't on the supplements. She was just doing Regular, she was making her own bread. She was eating her own vegetables, getting out, getting sunlight, you know, looking after her husband. So she was doing those things, and I always, I always look back at that and our ancestors. So, Chris, where can we find out more information about you? So the best place is probably our website, brainenergy.com. People can learn more about the book. There's actually a free self-assessment you can do there. Um, and we, we've got a newsletter that people can sign up for. Um, you can follow me on social media from there. Thank you so much, Chris, for being part of the Neuro Experience podcast. Thank you, Louisa, for having me.